Hello. Favaros. Adam. How goes it? It goes forward, whether we like it or not. That is true. True statement right there, folks. <laughs> What's going on? Not too much. How are things with you? Pretty dandy. Pretty dandy handy. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Just living, living the dream. Living the dream. I actually told it to one of my clients tonight. Uh, I. The funny thing is with that statement, living the dream, I, I always see the living the dream statement as about to jump off the Tobin Bridge. Like it's sarcasm. You know what I mean? What? <laughs> Gentlemen, what was good evening? Matt, hey, Matt how are hey, you? Not bad, not bad. Good to hear you guys. What's going on? Likewise, likewise. Matt, Matt, Adam over here, Matt. Hey, Adam. What's nice up? to meet you. Yeah, yeah, it's good to be on. Thanks for coming on. No sweat. Hey, it's up past my bedtime, but uh, anything to help myself and any other addicts out there. Sounds good. That's that's the attitude we're looking for. <laughs> hey, what other one can we have, right? It's either it's either one way or the other, right? We go one full speed in one direction. I'm I'm choosing to go yep. forward. Love uh, it. So, for the audience out there, if somehow this is the first episode you're listening to, shame on you, right? I mean, come on. Shame, shame, you are going to listen to one episode. Like this is a pretty good one. We have an amazing uh, guest uh, tonight who's going to share, you know, their story. Um, of what's kind of gone on in their lives, but ideally, you know, resilience and hope and, you know, making out of this thing, you know, called, you know, active addiction. So, Adam, you were talking once again while I was? Um, I don't believe I was. Mm. No, it wasn't me, the guys. You, yeah. must, you, must, you must have a mole on the line. But, you know, <laughs> listen, I'm, 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 I'm just another scumbag like the rest of us trying to make the, trying to make the best of what's left. Mm. <laughs> Um, so Matt, yeah, just to, uh, you know, set the stage, I know, you know, we've, we've talked offline, so, uh, you, you obviously have a life, you have a family, you, you know, you have other things kind of going on. So, you know, this forum is obviously open to what you're comfortable in sharing. Um, Adam and I will occasionally, you know, pause you a little bit to maybe ask any further questions if great. you're comfortable answering and it will kind of go along that way. Uh, we'll yeah, I'm not, towards I'm not great it. at the monologue these days, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, I love the sound of my own voice and all, but I can only hear myself talk for about maybe, I don't know, maybe three minutes at a time before I want to puke. <laughs> I feel the same way, Matt. I feel the same way. <laughs> uh, so then, you know, we'll wrap it up towards the top of the hour and then, you know, we'll head into, you know, the five controversies and uh, we greatly appreciate if you can participate uh, in that little activity of ours. Cool. Yeah. Hey, listen, really I'm, cool. I'm down for whatever. Let's Let's do this, you know. Fabros, you mentioned the top of the hour thing. We'll wrap it up. I don't really like to put a time frame on things, so let's just play it by air. Well, if, if you listen to our guest, who is up past their bedtime. Way you know, past. But I took a nappy poo, so. Yeah. He already said it's not about him. It's about helping others. He already put that out there, so. That's right. My disclaimer was set in stone. <laughs> I reserve the right to change my mind at any time during this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. As well. Hey, hey, I don't know, hey no, that's, that's true, too. Yeah. That's yep. true. 
At any yeah. any point, you can kind of pivot and 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 log yourself off. <laughs> no, 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 hell no. Listen, even hey, even happened. if you some awkward silence, I mean, I'm still down to roll and flow. <laughs> uh, yeah, the one thing I will say, if I start if I start talking like I have marbles in my mouth, um, then you can cut me off and say, Matt, it sounds like you have a mouthful of marbles or dick or whatever. Just let me know because I will be in incomprehensible at that point. <laughs> All right. If, if we can't make sense of it, you know, we'll ask you to <laughs> repeat yourself. Profanity is allowed on this, right? I mean, I'm not sure I can get through most discussions. Have you listened? You. Have you listened to any of the episodes? <laughs> uh, a couple, yeah. I think I've heard a few bombs. I just want to make sure. I mean, mine, mine's, mine's a bit out there, but not, not by effort or choice. Um, you know, just by uh, upbringing, uh, nature and nurture. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. This is definitely uh, for uh, adult ears, and sure. so we we share that in our, on our podcast platforms. Cute. That's probably why it's up so late. <laughs> after dark. Yeah, yeah, after dark with Bob yeah, Rose and yeah, Al. It's like, it's like Skinamax, just that voices and no no, no visual. <laughs> it's good. I'm missing a few teeth these days, so I'm glad it's just on podcast. Skinamax. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Shannon Tweed was like my my childhood idol. So. Ooh, not, now you're taking us way back. Way back. Shannon Tweed. I used to wait up for 9 o'clock for my parents to go to bed so I could just watch Shannon Tweed for like 20 uh. minutes. Dan <laughs> Sweet, if you're listening to this podcast, mysteriously, you, you made a lot of young boys very, very happy. <laughs> yeah, she was the, uh, she, you know, all the all the rockers, the Tawny Katane people. No, I mean, Shannon Tweed was, was the, she was the Skinamax, late night, you know, deviant sort of, you know, woman that like, you know, when I was 12, 13, it was like, man, that that's it. And like, you didn't see much. Literally, you couldn't even see a nipple, but it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> right uh, but we 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 digress right we're not here for a shannon tweed uh love affair episode we're nope. here to hear from you matt and that's the next your story yep absolutely so uh you know the, the floor is yours wherever you want to start wherever you want to kind of take it uh cool. we're here to listen and we're, we're here to uh, appreciate you all right so let me get going the um you know the the hardest part is the starting point, right? Because for me, um, you know, we've all sat in AA meetings. We, we've all heard the, you know, all the adages and, and all the sayings and, and everyone's story, right? Um, I, I firmly identify with the fact that I, I was super different uh, from anyone I knew closely, be it in my neighborhood, uh, my, my brother or sister, uh, my parents, uh, when, I, when I was four or five years old. And that was, you know, it was clear to me then. It, it was absolutely clear to me then because I had a major insecurity about so many things. And the hmm. first thing that really stuck with me was um, I had to go see an eye doctor when I was uh, six because when Nintendo first came out, uh, I was obsessed. I, I couldn't stop. I physically would tell myself that I need to stop. And I couldn't. I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. And it cost me about a year and a half. I had this major blinking problem. And my parents kept bringing me to the eye doctors. And, you know, no matter how much it was, it was threatened to you know, take it away or, or whether they were empty threats or even valid threats, they just didn't matter, you know? Mm. And, and that's the way that my life progressed from that point on. Um, so, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say at five, I was like, man, I'm an addict. I'm going to need help someday. But, <laughs> you know, I certainly knew that there was something different. Like th there was the, like I'm watching everybody else just be like, oh, you know, I would play wiffle ball for 12 hours and I would be scolding my friends. Like, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving? Like, we're not done yet. You know, you can't quit like, now. You and, can't quit. And, yeah, exactly. And, and, here I am now, you know, thinking to myself, oh, I still do the same shit. Um, but, you know, it's it's a transition, right, and, and growth. Uh, you know, I really didn't, I didn't know much about drugs or alcohol growing up. My, I lived in a very, very 
you know, um, wholesome, entitled family. I was a middle child. I definitely had middle child syndrome, uh, you know, always looking for that attention. You know, the sister was the the, the younger, you know, um, you know, she could do no wrong. And, and my brother was that that rock of a leader and, and the guy who got to do everything first. So, uh, you know, he was always humble and gracious with me. He always allowed me to do the same things he did. Mm. And that was nice. So he kind of, you know, helped to uh, ease the middle child syndrome in me. But, you know, he never had an interest in, in, in alcohol or drugs. And I remember the first first time I ever snorted cocaine was, um, you know, at his best buddy's house. They had a mirror busted out on the floor. And uh, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. You know, and from, from, I would say, you know, I went to Central Catholic for, and that's in Lawrence, Mass. I grew up in Mass. And, you know, growing up at Central Catholic, I... I wanted to fit in, but I wasn't very cool there. And I always thought like, geez, you know, I want to be more, but I, I really just wanted to be more socially. So I, I would have done anything to be more socially. Um, and, you know, I saw people experimenting with drugs and alcohol and things like that. So, so I wanted to give it a shot. And that didn't happen until I transferred to Methuen High when I was a junior. And when I transferred, I finally, you know, started hanging out with people, um, you know, got a little more uh, notoriety and popularity in school and, started getting invited out to football games and things like that. But, you know, I was always super insecure, always super, but, and you wouldn't have known it, you know, and, and I'm sure Barbaros can attest to that, you know, yeah. you is, that when you, was, is that when you met Barbaros? Yeah. Yeah. I met Barbaros my junior year when I had transferred from central Catholic. Uh, so um, that's when you, and, and I find it hard to believe, but that's when you became Cole is when you met him. Uh, no, no, no. Well, See, I always attributed myself. <laughs> here's that inferiority complex, right? I used to, you know, shit on people and bully people and things like that. And I always, I always called Barbarossa's crew, the Chuck E. Cheese gang and, you know, kind of picked on them a little bit because I hung out with a couple kids that like to you know, drink and smoke and, 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 you know, um, violate women on, on a regular basis and, and basically just, just run amok and act like, you know, we couldn't be touched. Um, you know, back yeah. then the, the laws of the universe weren't really um, against us, right? We're kids. Uh, the, the, the jackpots were so low, right? You, you know, you get in a fight, it's just a slap on the wrist. You know, you're not in court with it with an A and B charge. Yeah. So, you know, those things always just allowed me to think, hey, I guess there's more partying to do. Um, mm. And, you know, I would, I, would, I would do it excessively. I would do it with the, only the intent to get fucked up. And I knew that. And I knew that my other friends didn't do that. So I guess I always look for a running mate, you know, somebody to help me justify, you know, the fact that I was a sick person. And I always found that with somebody, right? We can always find another addict out there and always justify that they're worse than we are. So, um, you know, I, I use those kids that I thought was cool to do that. Matt, can I just jump in? You, you said something just really kind of like triggered something for me, like, you know, working in the field for such a long time. I've heard that notion so many times that like, my core group of friends who used to like smoke and drink could never hang with me. And I used right. to always beat people. Right. Like what, what does that do to the, your ego in terms of like using substances? And like you just said, like trying to find someone who can like keep pace with you. Cause if there's that kind of like comparison and like desire to like have someone like keep the party going with you. And as long as you could. Right. Right. I mean, when, when you're a kid, you, you take pride in, in that. And, and obviously now I'm 44 looking back and I'm like, what the fuck did I do? But, um, but I mean, at that point in time, I, I can definitely place myself, you know, viscerally back there and say, you know, that was a, a source of pride for me. That was a source of, of, of that was, that was my MO. Like if, if you were going to hang with me, we were getting fucked up and we we're going to see who goes down. And I definitely wasn't going down. Mm. You know, and it didn't matter what, you know, I, honestly, I would have done anything. It, it didn't matter what you told me. I, I, I'm lucky to be alive today with all the shit that people just handed me and I stuck in my body. Mm. You know, it's, um, 
crazy that you couldn't have told me that there was, uh, I mean, I would take 10 strips of acid and, and go, you know, pump gas when I was 16 years old at a full service gas station and, and think that that was like the cool shit to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it wouldn't matter. You, I could go out looking for an eight ball of Coke and somebody would tell me they, 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 they had a, you know, a gram of heroin. I'd say, ah, oh, fuck it. Let's just do that then. You know, it didn't matter. I, I just wanted to get fucked up. And, you know, a lot of people go through like childhood trauma and, and, you know, abusive families and, and abusive parents and, and, you know, real serious shit. And, and all I can say is I didn't have any of that. I was super entitled. You know, my family was super wholesome, um, which goes to show like, it doesn't matter who you are, you know, addiction grabs you. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't require a certain lifestyle. It doesn't require a certain upbringing. It's, it's not a, it's not, it's not a, uh, it's not a manifestation of, 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 of nature, right? It's something that we have in us and there's no, there's no denying that it, it's irrefutable. Okay. So, you know, I went to, um, I was that guy that literally gave a shit about nothing. Okay. Like, cause I was, you know, I played sports. I was a very good athlete. Um, yeah. I always felt I, I was, I had this huge ego and, and I still do, but I didn't think anything would ever affect me. I could do what I wanted. So I decided to look at no colleges my senior year. Didn't even visit one. Uh, my parents were having, meanwhile, having like, you know, and here I am like oblivious to it. They're having like, uh, you know, the National Guard come to the house and, and army recruiters and military recruiters. And it's like, yeah, nice to meet you. Cool. Yeah, that's cool what you do. But yeah, I mean, have fun. I'm not interested. You know, I mean, for me, it was just a form of self-control and, and something that somebody was trying to do to control me. And I said, you know what? I said, I think I'm going to go to UMass Dartmouth. And I said, what do you mean? Are you going to go to college? I said, yeah, I'm going to go to UMass Dartmouth. I said, I, I signed the, the application and um and they accepted me. They're like, okay, cool. Well, that's going to, you know, unbeknownst to me, it, it cost them about 150 grand, you know, the time I wasted there. Mm. Um, but for me, it didn't matter. It was me just getting away, right? And telling somebody the story that they wanted to hear. It was always telling somebody the story they wanted to hear just to, you know, my addiction did, you know, just to make sure I could keep doing what I needed to do. So mm. I, at this point, you know, by the time I graduated, I had experimented with, you know, pretty much every hard drug out there. Um, I had nothing but a loving family uh, that I took advantage of. Um, you know, chronically. And I decided I was just going to remove myself far enough away from them where I could still be involved in their lives. And, you know, when I wanted to be out of convenience, I could still be around to collect money from them when I needed to and, you know, utilize them as, as my crutches when, when things got bad, but still be far enough to where they couldn't catch me and they couldn't see me, you know? Mm. And, And that was, that was always my stance, you know, always me, my addiction was always maintaining, you know, my distance from other people, just far away enough to, to allow me to do what I needed to do. And I went to UMass Dartmouth when I was, uh, I started there when I was 17, actually. So just turning 18 and the first semester there, I got a 0.0 GPA. Uh, I didn't do a single thing. I literally drank (laughs) every night. No, it takes effort. It does. That's like getting a zero in your SATs. Um, even, even some teachers going to, you know, bound to give you like a, a, you know, some, some score on something. I didn't know where a single class was. And that's what a puke I was, you know, I was, I was just pissing away my parents' money, telling them that I was trying, you know, bullshitting them the whole time. And, uh, I got a 0.37 my second semester and I was fucking proud of myself. Uh, and that's not a 3.7. That's a 0.37. Uh, I got, and the only reason I got a 0.37 was because my English teacher smoked pot and me and a couple of my buddies thought it would be cool to go to her apartment in Boston and smoke pot with her. But in order to do that, we had to show up for a couple classes. So I showed up to a couple classes and I got like a D and got my 0.37. And, uh, and they kicked me out and, uh, you know, I know, you know, I, I reference, you know, and uh, we'll get into my book later and stuff, but, you know, I reference the, um, you know, the book outliers in the, the chapter that has to do with, uh, you know, Mr. Langdon and, 
um, Oppenheimer and, and the contrast between the two minds and, and how, how brilliant the minds are. But, you know, the outlying quality is just the, the ability to talk, right? The ability to convince people what they want to hear. Uh, you know, the ability to read people off, off you know, uh, an instantaneous meeting and, and understand, you know, what they're looking for. And, yeah. and that was me, you know. So I got I got a letter saying I wasn't allowed back. Um, I drank and drugged for 180 days that year. I, I, I broke people's windows. I, I got arrested several times. Um, didn't matter. Didn't matter one bit. It, it, for me, it was just, you know, the world basically getting in my way. And did as long as I wasn't find that stuff out, what you oh did yeah, yeah, yeah. My mother, you know, God bless her. She is the most chronic enabler. Um, but th- like I said, there, there's no there's no textbook on how to treat an addict. You know, she was always scared of losing me. Yeah, yeah. You know, my yeah. dad was always that voice in the rear saying, you know, Cheryl, geez, uh, we gotta we gotta pull the reins back here. And um, you know, she never did. And and to be honest with you, she probably would have lost me. You know, I was that that vindictive, you know, entitled, you know, uh, just self seeking prick that. You know, I, I would have taken it out on people vindictively and, and selfishly. So, you know, after all these years, I can say she, she did it right for sure. You know, but there is no right or wrong way. Yeah, you know, and yeah. so I get this letter from from the dean saying, you know, just don't come back. We don't want you here. Um, and I'm like, no, it must not be for me. I said, let me go down there and talk to him. So I, uh, I, I sent I sent I sent a letter back, you know, saying how much I expressed to, to go to the school and um I went to meet the dean and I said, listen, I'm going to put in my full effort here, no matter what. And I, I did that. I lied to him, basically. And he said, we have one room. You are very lucky, Mr. Garen. He goes, we have one room left in this dorm, in this entire campus. He said, you're going to have to live on the first floor of the same dorm you were in last year. Uh, and you're going to have to live with the paraplegia kid. And I said, no problem. Um, so I did it. And I took that room and, and I went on to get another 0.0 uh, that next semester. Uh, and during that semester, you know, I, I think back to like, I think back to all the shitty things I did while, while I was drinking and drugging and, and, you know, the universe does balance you out eventually. I will say that, but, you know, I was just a shitty person, just a shitty, awful human being. I would, I would take this boy's wheelchair around campus when he left for the weekend, cause he left his electric wheelchair and, and put beers on it. And, and, you know, I thought I was the coolest shit. And like, I look back, I'm like, what a fucking moron, you know? Mm. Uh, what a dick. So, um, you know, I had a lot of fun, uh, what I thought was fun, uh, you know, kids being kids and stuff like that, but the college know, experience, yep. The college experience, my college experience was tripping on mushrooms, playing, you want to buy a duck with 20 other kids that were just as big of losers as I was at the <laughs> time. Um, you know, they all grew up a little sooner than I did though. And, uh, you know, I was still that one, uh, you know, with, with, the, with the Peter Pan syndrome, mm. but the, um, the effort or desire was never there. So I decided I was going to go home and I was going to, um, you know, bow down and, and say, yep, I was wrong. And, and, you know, still continue drinking and drugging and seek other people that, that would. And I found, you know, more friends back home that were willing to, you know, drink and drug with me and, and, you know, help me hide my, my issues and my problems. And I did that, you know, I would, I would stay in one friend's house while, you know, technically living at my parents back home after, you know, removing myself from college. And, you know, we uh, we drank and drugged and, and we both conjured up this idea like, hey, let's go to culinary school, man. Let's be chefs. And, uh, <laughs> and that's where it all came from. And literally it came from nothing. It came from nothing. It came from literally sitting at uh, my buddy Nelson Burns house uh, out back on his trampoline while his mother was buying him 30 packs of beer at fucking 19 years old because he was agoraphobic and couldn't leave the house. Uh, it was smoking, you know, six foot bongs and psychedelic posters. And we just said, let's go be chefs. I actually followed through with the plan of being a chef. I told my parents, I said, hey, I want to be a chef. And they said, that's a great idea. Why don't we put you in a, you know, community college, a culinary school. 
So, uh, so I decided to do that. And Nelson was didn't end up coming with me. I believe he he became a bouncer at Lucky's in Boston and uh, eventually became general manager, uh, but didn't end up coming to culinary school with me. You know what the day that turned uh, him off from culinary school is? I used to steal all the meat from my parents' freezer, and, <laughs> and I'd bring it to his house to cook it. And uh, I remember we had this lamb leg, and he just got this puppy, Marley, at the time. It was actually named Molly, and then he changed it to Marley because he wanted the name to be cool. And then a few years later, um, Molly became cool, so he changed it back to Molly. <laughs> so, uh, and, Poor and this, right, this was all based off of off, off drug culture and, and drug yeah. culture and stuff like that. So um, Nelson didn't follow through with the plans. I signed up at Northern Essex to get on my college way, and it turns out I, I really enjoyed it. It didn't take me away from the drugs. It didn't take me away from the drinking. But I definitely love being a chef. I love what I could do. I love my, my talents. I didn't have patience for anything. I still don't. And my mother, you know, will tell you today, like she doesn't, she was just, I don't know how you have this patience for cooking, Matthew, but for some reason you do. It's the only thing in the world you have an, a modicum of patience for. And, uh, you know, and I loved it. It was because I loved it. It was because I really thought that I was good at it. And, um, you know, it stuck. So, I decided to start working in a kitchen for the first time, and I went to this really fancy restaurant in Lawrence, and I told the chef, I'll basically do whatever you want. Um, and I didn't know what, what a culture like restaurants were. Like, I thought I was going from like, you know, like drinking and drugging every night, peeing out my window in my bedroom so I didn't have to go downstairs to, to see my parents, you know? And I get into restaurants like, holy shit, these people are all just as fucked up as I am. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we had we had the, we had a tab at every bar on the street after work. But, you know, I fell in love with like the lifestyle of restaurants. But at the end of the day, I really loved working there. I loved working the shift. I loved the fast pace. I loved it. I loved the adrenaline, the intensity. Mm, um, you the know, it was just, yeah, it was just finding that balance of being able to leave work and not want to set the world on fire. Mm. And uh, that that took, you know, decades <laughs> to, to figure out. But the lifestyle was, uh, you know, my love one and one A with with the cooking. So, you know, that's kind of what saved me. You know, I, I took that cooking and, you know, I decided to, you know, continue my career, always being that functioning addict, taking whatever. I would leave work and do it again, whatever I could. If somebody had heroin, if somebody had crack, if somebody had coke, it always started with the drink. Um, I would be blackout drunk, crashing into cars, totaling like I totaled like six of my dad's cars. And. I mean, if I got into like all my stories, we'd be here for, for, for eons. I've done more stupid shit every single night of my life and had more insane drama, whether it's being chased by cops, knocked, like it doesn't matter. Like there's just so, so many of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, they're all just symptoms of, of me being a, a, like an absolute dipshit. And the one thing I had was the cooking. So I decided to, um, the, the first restaurant that I got a job cooking at, the sous chef there was, was an alcoholic. Uh, and he fell back and he was, a, he was a sober alcoholic at the time. And he would come over to the bar. And this was my first inclination to what alcoholism was. I knew nothing about alcoholism. I didn't know people could be. I didn't know, you know, there was anything to do with, you know, people having a, a you know, a disease. Yeah. I thought it was just, hey, this guy drank too much and felt bad about his life. So he would come over and, and drink like, you know, a soda. Um, you know, he fell off the wagon and I, I saw it, but he ended up bringing me to Boston. Uh, he put me as sous chef at this place in Faneuil Hall when I was 20 years old. And um, he got fired a couple weeks later and the corporate chef walked in. So the guy, this, I, I worked for the guy that owned uh, Cheers, Tom Kershaw. He, you know, he had right at the front of Faneuil Hall, he had the Cheers. And then, uh, you know, mm -hmm. he, owned the, he owned the adjacent restaurant. Uh, it was called TK's Jazz Cafe. And I became the executive chef of TK's Jazz Cafe upon my friend being fired 
at 20 years old. And, um, you know, what that says to a guy with a huge ego and an inferiority complex, uh, you know, I, <laughs> but, you know, I always, um, I always picked up language. So I learned Spanish fluently. Um, same when I moved to Thailand, I learned Thai fluently. So, you know, my abilities to kind of navigate the kitchens, um, you know, and connect with my staff was always good because they were always Latino. Um, so it, it was very easy to make friends. Uh, again, I was super popular because I was a 20 year old executive chef working in Faneuil Hall, you know, um, everybody, again, every, every night was a shit show. I remember doing so much cocaine that like, I couldn't even breathe. And I had to like show up at the corporate house on Beacon street to do a function. And I literally remember walking in there, hyperventilating, I can't work today. I can't work it. And like, I think back, it's so embarrassing, <laughs> you know, but that was me. It was me. I was, you know, I was literally blowing a line off my buddy's table. Um, you know, me like, oh shit, I got to work today and like running to work. And, and that was my life. You know, uh, when, when one, when one shift ended, you know, the, the shift of drinking and drugging started. Uh, and when that shift ended, I was pretty much late for my next shift to work. So that was, that was how we went on for, you know, a good couple of years, but you know, how I found out about alcoholism, um, and being an alcoholic, uh, I met a waitress, her name was Alyssa and she was extremely smart. She was getting her master's at the time. Now I'm 20 years old. She's 22 and she's about to get her master's in education. And I'm like, Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, she would coach me on, I used to be that guy that said, I seen it. And, and have the, you know, the worst, um, you know, grammar and verbiage. And, uh, you know, today I'm very mindful. I mean, I'm writing books, so uh, some, something clicked. But, you know, I didn't want to, I, I always feared sounding stupid, you know. Um, and she was intelligent and, and I was very attracted to, to, to her. You know, she wasn't an addict. Um, she was very polished. And, you know, just kind of the lifestyle that, that she lived was very attractive to me. It was very stable. Um, and even though I knew I couldn't honor it and do it, uh, I still wanted to try and I did that, I guess, with everybody that I brought down with me. Um, you know, I knew I couldn't live that life or couldn't honor their commitments or, or, or their boundaries, um, but I desperately wanted to. So I think that was when I first started to realize that there's really something wrong with me. Um, and she, she validated that. She, she had brain surgery, uh, you know, about a year into our relationship. And, uh, and, and, and I, used, I used her mother to give me a ride drunk home from a Red Sox game because she lived in Plymouth. She lived down south of Boston and I'm from the north. Wow. So I had her mother pick her mother was a nurse in Boston. I, I had her mother pick me up drunk from Fenway Park just so I could steal and drink her bottle of Roxas set and fill it up with water after her brain surgery. And that's wow. when I had to look at myself and say, wow, bro, like you are a fucking scumbag, you know, and uh, it didn't matter, you know, ca carried on with with, you know, just just, you know, avoid we, we can block these days, right? We just hit the block button and it's like, boom, OK, cool. That didn't happen. Um, and, and that's basically what my addiction did. You know, it just kept telling me, yeah, just just block that out, Matt. You know, you don't have to worry about it, um, you know, but you do. So she had told me and I couldn't have been more offended. She said, uh, Matt, you know, uh, think you're an alcoholic. And then she said, uh, I said, OK, well, I, I'll go see a doctor and whatever. She goes, no, 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 there's programs for that, Matt. And I said, oh, OK, well. I don't know. I guess I'll just go see a doctor. So I, I wanted, you know, medicine. I thought medicine could fix me. So I got put on Zoloft and Wellbutrin and, and then we moved in together. Um, you know, I convinced her enough that I, I was well and we moved into an apartment in South Boston, right, right behind old colony projects. And mm. I was basically living in old colony while she was living in our apartment. Uh, and if you know the old colony projects in Boston, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a very nice place to live. I was, um, you know, copping drugs there every night, uh, you know, coming back to the apartment, punching holes in our wall, um, you know, just, just absolutely maniacal. Um, so of course, you know, it was definitely the medicine that was doing it to me. It wasn't, it wasn't the drugs. 
So, you know, we um So Zoloft the devil. Yeah, it was. The well it was I would take like six Wellbutrin at a time and and my head would just go zingy crazy. I remember being all out of alcohol one night and and a girlfriend from years past had brought a bottle of uh, wine, a bottle of wine home from Spain for me and it was really expensive. It was a bottle of uh, port wine that she got when she was living there. And it was in this wooden box. It was really cool. And and you're supposed to decant it, you know? And I was like, I don't know what that means. And I drank the whole thing and I had all the sediment all over my teeth. And I, I remember Alyssa coming home and being like, oh my God. And I remember Trot Nixon hit a grand slam that night to beat the Phillies. Uh, I have a very <laughs> photographic memory. <laughs> um, it was a great game. It, it was it was a game back from, geez, 19, no, 2000, 2001. But yeah, I mean, just me thinking to myself, you know, that this is all okay. You know, everything was always okay. Um, so Alyssa ended up, you know, having enough at this point and she decided to move back to Plymouth and I decided to stay in, in, in South Boston. And I was still working at I me. Mean, I was jumping jobs at that point. So I had left the jazz cafe. They had decided to make the entire unit cheers. And then they, they ended up laying me off. And I went on to work for basically every restaurant in Boston. I worked for Barbara Lynch, Kenny Oranger. I worked at the Red Fez. I, I moonlighted wherever I could to get experience and not just because I was using or abusing jobs. Um, you know, I really was interested in cooking and, and that love was always there. And I always honored my shifts. I never missed work. And, uh, you know, I was working for Todd English in, in 2003. And I got a call right after the Aaron fucking Boone home run um, and rest in peace, Tim Wakefield. But. Yeah. Right after that, I got a call from Aramark saying, hey, uh, we're looking to hire a chef for the um, the new right field roof deck in Boston in 2004. And I said, what? I said, no, I cook fancy food. I'm not doing that. I worked at Olives, you know, and then I went I went to the park. We used to sleep outside the park for tickets. I drunk every night. And I was like, you know what? They're going to pay me to watch every game. I was like, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. So I did that and, um, you know, just kept running amok. But I got to see every every game of the 2004 World Series. And, that was awesome. Uh, shit was... drunk every every moment of it. But magical year of my life. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that have always happened to me. Uh, I've always had a stroke of luck. Everywhere, and, and people tell you, I, I have a horseshoe up my ass and I seem to have always had it for my whole life. Um, but everywhere I go, there's always seems to be something, you know, um real that happens you know and, and positive that happens there so I, I always like to at least at least fall back on that but that year 2004 i worked for the red sox uh i got fired in 2005 for um letting people into the park for, in exchange for vicodin <laughs> so, is that against the rules there at fenway it, it's not allowed yeah gate b it's not allowed but i guess the other gates it is <laughs> Yeah, so I, I used to trade the chubby guy down at the gate a, a, a plate full of chicken fingers to let this kid in, and then I would let the kid on the right field roof deck if he would give me 10 Vicodin. So I basically walked around the park drooling all day. Um, you know, they thought very highly of me. I always used to schmooze people and, and have that gift of communication. Um, and I also, a couple of weeks prior to that, I, I was at, the, at this point, my addiction had gotten so bad. When I was leaving work, I was going straight to Chinatown. I was looking for crack. I was... I was, you know, I was shanked in the belly. I had knives held to my throat. I had dudes throw, throw, throw knives at me from, from the passenger seat of my car. I was jumped repeatedly and it didn't matter. I would show up to work with it with a swollen face, black eyes. And, uh, you know, I remember Julie Jordan, the vice president of Aramark, she's going, Matt, holy shit, you can't be at work looking like this. I'm like, I'm fine. I'm good. Let's go. We got events today. She's like, no, you need to go home. And, um, you know, that never, never any of this dawned on me, you know, that I might have a problem. It's still right? not clicking at that point. Nope, nope. Alyssa had told me, um, but but it didn't click, you know. Uh, I started to, to give it some consideration, and but it never worked. So 
I was living at this time with um, a kid that I had worked with at Olives. He and me and TJ had decided to get our own place in South Boston. We never paid a dime of rent. And it's funny, in six months, the guy never even came asking for it. And I thought that was super awkward. Um, but he had so much money and so many apartments that he just didn't even care. I, I remember he came by once and he was like, hey, I, I don't remember seeing a check from you guys in the mail. I was like, oh, no, we mailed a check. He's like, uh, okay, I'll check, but I'm not sure. It's like last month. And that was the only conversation I probably had in the guy in six months about paying rent. Never paid a dime. You know, we were just always enabled. We were always very lucky. And TJ and I punched holes in those walls, smoked crack, fought about crack, left each other in Chinatown. Um, I remember we'd meet people and, uh, you know, we'd give them $20 to go get crack because we were just two white kids hanging out there. And and they would leave us their, their, like, their teeth. They'd take the teeth out of their mouth and be like, all right, I promise I'll be back. You can hold my teeth. And uh, I remember crushing the guy's teeth because he never came back with my, with my $20 worth of crack. And, um, you know, I laugh about it, but it's not so funny, you know, uh, it's, a sad, it's a sad place to be. But um, at that point, I was pretty much asked out when I got fired from Fenway. Um, you know, I had run amok at every restaurant and every friend and, and every apartment and, and every girlfriend and, and everything. Just I couldn't hang on to anything for more than a couple of weeks at this point. So my mother had come to get me and she this was in 2005. And she's like, Matt, you got a problem. Um, I said, what? Yeah, you have a problem. So. When my mother starts telling me with tears in her eyes that I have a problem, I said, I better look into this. So I decided that I was going to go to an outpatient program, and I did that in Lynn. So I signed up for an outpatient program, decided to move back into my parents' house. I left South Boston, and I went straight into this recovery program. And I remember this guy, Rick, he was the teacher there. And I was just there to womanize. I was just there to get my mother off my back, uh, maybe, maybe reconnect with Alyssa, and you know, make a few, make a few buddies along the way. And I remember the counselor, Rick, you know, I used to be that loud mouth in class and Rick would, uh, you know, he'd kind of calm me down from time to time, be like, you know, calm down, Matt. And I remember pulling him aside after class and being like, you know, hey, Rick, you know, I hope, I hope you don't think I'm, I'm too disruptive. You know, I'm not trying to, you know, just trying to smooth. He goes, Matt, you're the one that's going to fucking die. What do I care? And I remember that. It stuck with me, you know, son of a bitch got me. <laughs> and, uh, and he was right, you know, and from that point on, I said, you know what? He's right. So I, uh, I put everything down. I, um, I told Alyssa that I was going to, you know, put everything away. I got clean uh, instantly, and I spent three years uh, going through Alcoholics Anonymous twice a day, did my 90 and 90. I got turned on to the program. Um, I got my education. I got my education on how to be a human being, and I had no idea. I had no idea that, that life was just about being kind, you know, taking my own inventory, uh, making sure that I had a positive impact on the people around me. Um, and not doing drugs in the process. And that was, that, that was an epiphany. And, um, and I wrote that. I wrote that for three years. And I had the, you know, my family came back to me. Everything came back very quickly. Um, all the friends, all the family. Uh, it didn't take long. And um, I wrote that. So Alyssa and I, you know, the ex from, from Boston who, who led me to, you know, understand that I had a problem. You know, she was in and out of my life at this point, and I had started working at a local restaurant, and I was doing very well. The restaurant was getting a lot of um, publicity in the Boston Globe, being even 20 minutes north. It was Keon's in Haverhill, and uh, we won Restaurant of the Year from from the Boston Globe in 2008, and I was, like, blown away. One of these lucky awesome. things, right, that just happens to happens to me where I am, and I didn't think my food was any greater than anybody else's. Um, I definitely put a lot of effort into it, and I definitely tried to make everything scratch the right way. Um, I, I would make, you know, I, this other kid that worked, it was just myself and, and, and another cook that, that cooked in a 48-seat restaurant, and it was really nice. Um, and 
and we we would we would rice the potatoes through a food mill after you know slow boiling then we would then we would dry them in the oven and then we would put them every bit you know by hand through a food mill and when you're doing 50 pounds of potatoes a day by hand through a food mill um it gets pretty intense you know we were we were hand wrapping our own agnolotis and raviolis but there was a lot of pride in it right it was super happy mm. um, people kept coming to my restaurant that i hadn't seen in years and and like all this connection was happening and um Alyssa and i had had started to you know be a little more serious but she had come in one day and had dropped a bomb on me said uh listen matt i didn't really say much about this but i decided to um, apply for some jobs and these jobs are international and um, i got accepted to a job in singapore at singapore american school i don't know if you guys remember this back like 30 years ago this kid michael something or other got flogged by by a cane in singapore for spray painting cars and that was yeah. all i knew about singapore and i looked at her and i said do they eat cats there and she's like you're an ignorant fuck, matt honestly and i said yep you're right but um you know, okay. tell me, tell me about the school. So she did. And I was like, all right, well, you know, what's our plan? You know, do you want to, do you want to continue doing this? And she said, yes, I'd like to start my job and hopefully you'll come out and visit me and, you know, we'll, um, we'll take it from there. So I remember in the, in the fall of 2007, I went to visit her in Singapore and it was that magical time, you know, it just like, it opened my eyes to, to life outside the United States and, and the possibilities of my life as I, I, as the potential could reach. So I decided that I was going to, um, leave my job at Keon's and and go move to Singapore and marry this girl and, and live a life happily ever after. Uh, wow. She was she was currently teaching at Singapore American School. Um, it was the number two international school in the world at the time, and like I said, she was she was she was very intelligent, um, very good at what she did, and she was very much in love with me. So I had nothing to lose. So I moved out there in March of 2008, um, completely out of my out of my element. Right, I'm living in like the most Chinese area of Singapore, in like the northeast region of Chowchukan, which is just on the border of Malaysia. And I'm like, wow, like how did I get here? You know, <laughs> hadn't got a job yet, hadn't really established myself anywhere, but I was free from my addiction. I had been three years clean, and I was going to meetings out there, and like things just couldn't get any better. Um, you know, until one day, you know, what I didn't realize is that my addiction didn't happen to just carry itself into drugs and alcohol. You know, my addiction was women as well. And I'm sure that goes with every other addict. Right. And I would entertain, you know, getting on uh, Singapore love links and having conversations with girls while Alyssa was at work just to ease my boredom. Right. Not not realizing the destruction that it would have on, on my partner's life. Um, and she was scheduled to go home. I moved in March when the school year ended. She was planning to go back and see her mother for a couple months back in the States. At that point, I had just found a job. I had looked up with the French company. They were teaching me how to design kitchens in the metric system, and they were the largest importers of wine into Southeast Asia. Nice. So what what a great thing for an addict. So I started working 90 hours a week. Um, Alyssa and I's relationship deteriorated quickly, and I immediately said, nope, I'm staying here. I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to make a life. Um, so I decided I was going to move out hook up with, uh, you know, a couple expatriates and, and find a flat somewhere. And I did met an American guy and an Australian girl. We decided to get an apartment. And I was at this point, I was working. Alyssa was getting set to go home and, you know, we were still, you know, still in communication, which was awkward, but, but we knew that it was over. Yeah. And, um, you know, she decided to go home for the summer. And the minute she decided to go home for the summer, um, I was in my office, you know, before one of our first restaurants opened, I was working for this French company. Um, I was doing very well. I was, you know, walking by the Indian temple, finding, finding other religions, finding other, you know, means of connection with people. And the, the guy who delivered our wine was this really jacked little Chinese guy, ball guy. His name was Poe. 
and Poe come in. He's like, hey, Matt, let's go to Gaylong. And I said, Gaylong, isn't that where all the, all the prostitutes are? He's like, yeah, no. He's like, there's gambling because there's no crime in Singapore. Literally, this area of Gaylong, prostitution's legal in Singapore because there's Navy ports and stuff, and the, the government there is very smart. So I said, uh, yeah, I guess I'll go to Gaylong with you. But I couldn't, I couldn't actually go through with the whole prostitution thing unless I had a beer in me because it just wasn't me because it, 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 it mirrored my addiction. Mm. So, so I, 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 I remember like that whole day, just the, the pit of like disgust in my stomach after spending three years clean, knowing that I was now about to take a drink. There was no going back. I knew that if Poe picked me up in that van, that I was going to gay long, I was taking a drink and I did. And from that moment on, I decided, uh, I'm just going to run with this. You know, I'm going to do what I got to do. Plug it. Oh, say that again. Flood, floodgates were open. Oh, yeah. No, the one drink and that's it. One drink and it's the world is now my oyster in, in the most like seedy, seedy and awful way. And that 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 planting that seed in the mind is is so gross. Right. And it's like you just toy with it in your head and you say, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. And I remember how bad it hurt. And like, you know, I, I remember I had been going to meetings there. I'd found meetings in Singapore. And, you know, Alyssa and I prior to her. Um, going to back to the States and things falling apart, we had taken a brief vacation to Thailand. And I knew Singapore was a very sterile and safe, and they, there's no crime there. Uh, it's it's the safest country in the world. There's They literally kill any animal there that could do any harm to a human. They spray for mosquitoes uh, every single day. You'll see the planes fly overhead and, and drop, in the, drop in the gas on the mosquitoes. Um, and it's the safest place. I said, this isn't a place for a guy like me. I said, I'm back to drinking again. I got to be in a place where this shit's cool. So right. I had been, I'd been to Thailand. We, we had vacationed in Phuket once. And I said, let's see what I can do. I said, either way, I said, I'm not going to stay in Singapore. So if I can get a job quickly in Thailand, then I'll see what I can do. And I, I linked up, I, I replied to this job ad uh, for this guy, Jeffrey Lord. He was opening up this posh beach club in Koh Samui, Thailand. I said, whatever. I said, listen, my girlfriend and I are on the outs. I sent him this very candid email. And turns out he had worked for Alice Waters and taught English and knew all the same chefs that I did from the States and you know, I was just like wholly blown away that this guy from this remote island in Thailand, you know, had parallels a lot of the existence. And, and he thought the same about me. So he flew out and he gave me a job. Uh, you know, he brought me into Thailand and uh, that's where my addiction just went nuts. I ended up being. So when I moved to Thailand, I had started drinking in Singapore, but obviously not so aggressively because it's very safe there and you really can't find drugs in Singapore. So I decided I was going to go to Thailand to do more drugs. And I did. And when I got there, you know, Jeffrey was 12 years clean at the time. He was an AA. And this was, you know, this was, this was God always putting people back in my life, right? Giving me that sign. Uh, hey, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. But, you know, me running right through all the stop signs as I did. Um, Jeffrey ended up, um, you know, being a very close friend of mine. He, he died shortly after I moved to the island in a motorbike accident. And, you know, kind of left me on my own there. And I had, by this point, I had achieved what I thought was celebrity status. I was in all the magazines. I was invited to all the Nikki Beach white parties. I was the, I was the onus at, at most of the, the, the ceremonies regarding the club. I had billboards, postcards, cardboard cutouts. I was doing, um, you know, more interviews and, and more, more like um, contrived dining than I was actually cooking, you know? And, and that's the lifestyle I started to live. And I told myself, shit, man, you've made it. Don't worry about that drink, right? Let's, let's go find something else. Um, and that's when, you know, that everything in my life turned to crystal meth. 
Um, I was, I remember I was being heckled one night outside of a bar about 3 a.m. And if it, the islands in Thailand, everybody drives a scooter. So there's like yeah. this little Thai writing. There's only three, three little characters on each motorbike. You, they're all black motorbikes. You can't tell which one's yours. So me being cross-eyed coming out of the bars, you know, and soy green mango with all the bright lights decided, you know, I'm trying to find my motorbike, you know, um, half in the bag. And I got started to get heckled by a bunch of lady boys. And if you guys know the lady boys scene in Thailand, um, you know, they're pretty aggressive. Um, so, uh, I don't remember much about the end of the night, but I remember smoking crystal meth. Um, I remember being, uh, raped uh, in the ass. I remember doing a lot of things that just, uh, most people wouldn't admit to, <laughs> but I, I woke up and it was this real silence of the lamb scene going on. You know, there was just a lady boy in the, in, on a vanity in, in a room that was basically just a concrete jungle slab. And the only thing that was nice in the room was the vanity, um, and the lady boy, she was pretty, don't get me wrong, uh, but definitely born a man. And I just remember her looking over and saying, hey, did you enjoy that, baby? And I said, whoa, what the fuck did I do, you know? Um, I guess so from that point on, I was just off and running with crystal meth. I had tried it. I had a taste of it. I uh, didn't care where I found it or what it made me do. And from that point on, it was uh, just straight downhill. I left that job. I, I became an entitled prick. Uh, I started hopping from job to job on the island, you know, acting as though my shit didn't stink, you know. Were, were you in Phuket? And, uh, Matt, Matt, were you in Phuket the whole time or the other islands, PC? So I was in I was in Koh Samui. Um, I was brought to Koh Samui originally, mm-hmm. and after I wore out my welcome on that island, I decided to move back to Bangkok. Yeah. So the funny thing about Bangkok, can I, can was I just can my... I just pause you for a second? This is interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I obviously I know I know bits and pieces of your story, but like. Sure. My wife and I, our honeymoon was in Thailand. Which part? Uh, we did Bangkok for one night, and then the rest of our stay, which was like, whatever, like ten days, was in Phuket. Where did you guys stay in Bangkok? Do you recall it all? Oh no, it it was just in some high rise kind of hotel, and you know we had a uh, a personal tour person that took us all around right. like Bangkok, and then the uh, the canals. Um, yeah, yeah. By the like the floral, yeah, floral market. Yeah, yeah. There, the floating market. You know, uh, we went to um, the palace. Yeah, the royal palace. Yeah. Isn't it? Isn't it a beautiful country? Oh man! Right, and you fell in love with the beauty and the people, and they 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 didn't know much about what I was going through, but these people supported me, loved me, you know, cared about me. Mm-hmm. Um, they 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 did nothing but try to help me and and that's the difference that i was so turned off by in return to american culture is is just the connection to to like the human soul that they have and regardless of what language you speak there's no help that they're unwilling to give you know and uh, and that helped carry me through my time there you know i was i was brought to bangkok from kosamui um after you know jeffrey died i, I wore out a few jo- jobs over there um i was definitely smoking crystal meth on the daily and um you know, things weren't good, but, you know, my company from Singapore, they loved me. I had left them on good terms. Uh, they didn't know much about me being an addict at all. Mm. I was this upstanding, you know, gentleman who helped open their first three shops, you know, just, you know, wished them well on a, on a different adventure to Thailand. But their biggest um, business was actually in Thailand. I was their first chef in Singapore, but they're they're most notably known in Thailand. And at the time when I moved there from uh, Koh Samui, they were opening up uh, K Village, which is this, it was this huge glass wraparound restaurant, just charcuterie, cheese, really, you know, Western food. We were feeding the prime minister, everybody important. Every Thai superstar was, was you just had to be seen at this restaurant. Mm. So my company from Singapore said, oh, geez, Matt Garen, let's, let's bring him back. He can open our, our place in Bangkok. You know, not knowing at the time that I had fallen into a huge crystal meth addiction. 
Um, and in and, and Thailand, they, they just trust you, you know, so they would hand me, not only were they paying me huge amounts of cash to run the place without acting, without asking, but every week they would say, here, Matt, here's a receipt pad. If you need to go to the store to buy things, you know, here's 20,000 baht. Um, I, so I, every week when Monday came around, I would just write in hand, uh, uh, cases of tomatoes, uh, 20,000 baht. It always equals 20,000 baht. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. What a surprise. Right, but it was always twenty thousand baht. It did. It went. It did. It went nowhere except crystal meth and prostitutes. I promise you, it didn't go. To, not a single dime went anywhere else unless it was like a taxi or something. Um, and that was it. The twenty thousand uh, baht worth of tomatoes was was not purchased. You know, and I, and I lived that life, and they believed me. Um, and I met this. I met this young girl. She came into my restaurant one day, and I. She was all decked out, and um, she said her name was Annie, and she said I. I got some lobsters and shellfish from uh, Maine and, and the coast of Massachusetts. I said, what? Get out of here. And she worked for this company. I said, so we connected in that way. And, um, you know, two weeks later, she ended up being pregnant um, with my kid. So, um, you know, at this point in time, you know, like I said, I was really just spiraling down with crystal meth. What, I didn't Matt, know what, what was going on. This is in 2010. So from the year of 2008, in the middle of 2008, from when I had moved to Singapore, Fast forwarding to 2010, when I had spent a year in Singapore and then moved to Thailand for, you know, about eight months. I actually spent about eight months in Singapore and then, you know, it was about a year in Thailand after that. Uh, so it was toward the end of 2010. So probably about a year and a half I'd been in Thailand at that point before I got to Bangkok. Okay. And, and she was, um, you know, she was actually my dog walker um, originally. She just, you know, wanted to help me out because she saw how stressed I was during the meeting uh, that I was sitting down with her. Little did she know I was, you know, just strung out from drugs. Um, but I made every excuse in the world. You know, my dogs were at home barking, whatever it was, right? It was always some excuse. So decided to, uh, you know, to start a relationship with her, my dog Walker, and she began impregnated in 2010 of that year. And at this point in time, I was just, you know, basically running from one job to the next. At this point, the people from Singapore who were now in Bangkok, my boss had started to catch wind that, you know, things aren't going so well with me. I started missing work a couple of days, not showing up. Um, you know, all those old triggers and habits, you know, coming back up and being recognizable to the to the people around me. And I decided I was gonna start fielding calls with recruiters and I, I took a job um, verbally. I verbally committed to a position in the Philippines to run six hotels and casinos and be the corporate F&B director because that gift of gab was still there. I interviewed with, with this hotel chain called Waterfront Properties, the largest hotel chain in the Philippines. And I knew nothing about the Philippines. I'd never been there, never visited, never once. You're, you're, I told, this, I told this guy that I did. Uh, Asian countries. Yep, it, it is literally the, the most poverty-stricken and overrun with crystal meth that you will ever meet. Um, and if you know a little bit about the history of the Philippines, uh, you can look it up. Uh, the United States did nothing but, but you know, disfavors to them and, um, you know, brought them crashing down. But they are in a state of poverty. Um, they actually are one of the countries that is uh, martial law is, is hugely prevalent. And their martial law... Um, includes 33,000 extrajudicial killings and the former pre president Duterte and then the vice president now, his daughter Maria, uh, their their campaign slogan is, if you have drugs, you die today. Yeah, yeah. So they've, wow. they've killed, and, and hear this, I, so they were the mayor of one of, of the town, Davao, which is the largest town by, by land mass in the world, and I ran the number one resort in there. I shook his hand, I shook his daughter's hand, and I fed them dinner on probably about five or six different occasions while he was the mayor of Davao, while I had crystal meth in my pocket. <laughs> I was running the boulevards there for a man that, and that's the thing, that that was the ego, right? And and that that brazenness that I had, that nobody could do shit to me. 
I was actually found to have crystal meth in one of my rooms while after I'd moved to the Philippines and started working for them. Not, I was a joke. I literally was their corporate F&B director and I designed a software program for an entire year. Now, backtrack to Annie getting pregnant. She became pregnant, but I'd already verbally accepted this job. So I had proposed to her, let's, let's get married just on paper. We don't know where the relationship is gonna go, but I'm gonna move to the Philippines. If you'd like to come with me, you can. I just wanna be a father. That's all I really wanted to be. I didn't want to be a husband. I definitely didn't want that responsibility, but I definitely wanted to be a parent. So I said, let's, let's do this. We'll move. We'll try things out. But at the end of it, I want to move back to the States. She said she agreed to that. So we agreed that I would take this job in the Philippines and she would move there at the latest possible time to let me get settled. And she was an enabler too. Um, and I moved to the Philippines, started my journey back there with crystal meth while she was, you know, at home, you know, in Bangkok becoming more and more pregnant by the day. I left her with my three dogs that were in Bangkok while I moved to live in my hotels in the Philippines. Um, and I, uh, I basically didn't have to report to work. I had a giant office in this giant glamorous hotel. Nobody asked me to do anything. Hmm. I, I, I made my own job. They said, what do you want to do, Matt? I said, well, um, I'd like to standardize the food by creating a software program. So I basically worked with software companies for an entire year. Um, and by working with software companies, I mean living in our rental hotels with prostitutes and large amounts of crystal meth. I used to carry the owner's BlackBerry. Uh, I used to, you know, shake hands with 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 Mayor and then President Duterte and, and his daughter and family. And I just lived this double life. And um, throughout the course of that time, you know, suspicions grew about me. And over the course of my one year contract, you know, Annie had moved. Uh, my daughter was born in that March of uh, 2011, March 4th. Um, and, and here's the symptom of the disease. So on March 4th, when my daughter was born, my mother had arrived, Annie's mother had arrived, and I couldn't have cared less. I told Annie's mother that she had to pay the initial fee at the hospital because I didn't have any cash, even though I got paid $4,000 every other, every other week, American dollars, and that's basically our king's ransom to them. Um, and I would, it would be spent in a night. It didn't matter how much, you know. So my wife decided to move at six months, had the baby, her mother, my mother come, and we got barricaded in the hospital because I couldn't pay the doctor. And if you can't pay the doctors in the Philippines, they don't let you leave. So I had military police shut down the hospital while my one-day-old daughter was swaddled in her mother's arms, and I'm sitting there acting like, like a Karen at the IOU counter telling him I'm not going to sign this because I'm the corporate F&B director of waterfront hotels and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And I'm so important, right? Listen to me. Um, they eventually let us leave uh, without signing that IOU. And the doctor refused to sign my daughter's birth certificate, um, which actually held up her ability to leave the country later on. So wow. all, all these destructive things I did, I couldn't have gave a shit about, you know, I left her mother stranded there without a dime. Um, and her mother disappeared. Uh, when she went back to Bangkok after that, um, my one-year contract in the Philippines ended sadly. Uh, quick story, uh, you know, prior to my contract ending, I was found to have crystal meth in my room. Yeah. And I told them, they saw girls coming in and out of my room all the time. All the corporate officers did it. It, it wasn't frowned upon. Every corporate officer had several women in and out of their rooms all the time. All their wives knew about it. They didn't care. The corporate HR woman, you know, um, Gabe, uh, God bless her soul. She She probably saw more shenanigans than, you know, anybody should have to see. But she said, um, you know, Chef Met, the... Um, um, you know, I don't want to, she was very apologetic and I had flown from uh, Bangkok where I had met the, the owners of the hotel one night for a meeting back down to Davao. And I was in my hotel and I was in my kitchen in Davao and I got a call from, from the corporate HR. She said, listen, we found crystal meth in your room and, um, we saw there was a girl in there. So we're pretty sure it was her. Uh, you know, we know you wouldn't do that, but we, we do have to bring you for a test. So I, I 
my all my all my cooks always loved me. You know, we we're always very tight. So I, I called my sous chef Jimmy over. I said, "Hey Jimmy," I said, "You do drugs?" He says, "No." I said, "Here's a bottle. Go pee in it." Hmm. And uh, I took that bottle with me to the drug test that because I knew they wouldn't look over my shoulder because they, they're you know they respected me. Yeah. And um and I poured that bottle into the cup, handed it to him with this smug look on my face, and said, "See you assholes, I don't do drugs." You know, like 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 a brazen motherfucker, and that was my addiction, and that was where it always went, right? So that was just you know. I remember that crippling God, but needless to say, you know, all these bad decisions came to a culmination of my, my wife at the time and, and my daughter not being able to leave the country. Um, my mother having to send them money and, and sign documents in order for them to leave her birth certificate was held up because I didn't pay the bill. So they got to leave a couple of weeks later, but at that time I had already gone back to the U S I was back into my drug addiction. Um, I was, you know, nothing. So you're back at mass at the time. Yep. So from there, I flew right back to the United States. Um, there was no other option. I had nothing left. I had borrowed so much money. I had ruined so many lives. Uh, my wife and daughter decided that they were going to go back to Bangkok anyway. We hadn't processed their visas the whole time I was there. Um, we decided, you know, I decided that, you know, drugs and drugs and drugs and women were, were way more important than doing that. And, and shame on me. You know, that was uh, that was very hard to cope with uh, over the next few years. So the um, the pain of that ended up in. And I didn't blame her for this at the time, but, you know, my daughter was three months old when she left the Philippines. She was born in March. My contract ended that June. And we decided to make plans when I went back to the States that I was going to move back to Thailand and, and, and stay with them. And I did. When she was six months old, I stayed three months in the United States, you know, did my thing, you know, stayed relatively clean while still drinking at my parents' house a little bit, just enough to, you know, be okay with me leaving again. So I saved up a little bit of money, got my plane ticket and went back to meet them in Bangkok so I could stay with my daughter, you know, always telling, you know, her mom what she needed to hear. But as soon as I went back to Bangkok, it was the same old stuff. Me out with the girls, me out with crystal meth, me coming home, you know, two days later, um, you know, trying to piece together this relationship with my daughter. And uh, finally, when my daughter was a year old, just after her first birthday of me spending six more months in, in, in Bangkok, trying to bullshit this relationship again. Uh, April 27th of 2012, uh, she walked out of a mall angrily and, uh, I didn't speak to my daughter again until July 16th of 2015. So over the course of that time, I had gone back to the United States, um, with my tail between my legs. I had lost my daughter, lost my kid. I had opened up a couple five-star resorts and islands and had the mafia come to assassinate me and run amok on pretty much every other island again while trying to stay in Thailand for a little while, about a year, and then, you know, move back home to get clean after that. Spent, uh, you know, two years working on myself and actually staying clean. So by the time my daughter was four and a half, I had put two years together. I had put two years, two honest years together. I wasn't really involved in the program. I wasn't doing it the right way, but I was staying clean and I was, I was being a good person. Mm. Or I thought so. I had, um, at this point, you know, you know, my daughter and I met basically for the first time, I'd say when she was four and a half years old and we met via a conference call, uh, you know, a Skype call, uh, while she was in the back of her mother's car and her mother called me after the call, which lasted about two minutes. She was dropping her off at school that morning. And, um, she looked at, she, she called me and said, just so you know, she doesn't know who you are, but she just looked at me before she got out of school. She goes, is that my dad? And uh, I was blown away, you know, I was blown away. So I guess just that intensity made me um, made me want to stay clean. You know, it was always that desire to be a parent. And I fought, you know, from the time my daughter was four until the time my daughter was eight, um, I stayed clean. I didn't do anything, no drugs. Um, I was in a healthy relationship at the time back here in the States. Um, I had started to um, grow up a little bit, you know, 
Um, I always had, I always kept the women though. I never, I never let drug, I let, even though I let go of all the drugs and alcohol, I never let go of the women. So, you know, I always reserved that right to take advantage of, of women and do that sort of stuff. And, and that's something that my integrity didn't really align with until, you know, just a few years ago, but only because I've seen it crush so many people unapologetically. But needless to say, when my daughter was eight years old, I had visited her a few times. And even though I was clean for that four years, whenever I would go to Bangkok, I would take one night during my daughter's visit, always the last night when I knew she wouldn't come to my hotel room because she always wanted to sleep in my room and stay with me. And I'd always have plenty of gifts and we'd go out and do these vacations and, and have the greatest time when I was there. So between the ages of four and eight for her, I visited, I think five or six times. Um, she had visited us once in the States, which her mother said would never happen. Um, but I had earned that trust, you know. But anytime I went to Bangkok, I took that last night. I got myself a bag of crystal meth. I, 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 I locked myself up in some seedy hotel room outside of where I was staying. So my daughter and, and my ex-wife didn't walk in on me. And I just ran amok. And then I would go back to my healthy relationship and back in the States and act like nothing ever happened. Um, mm. You know, I was with the woman Colleen. So... Even though, you know, in the United States, I hadn't used a drink or I hadn't taken a drink or drug in four years, I was still reserving the right to do that when I wanted to, right? Mm -hmm. The geographical cure, you know, right? I'm back here. I can't do it, right? Um, and, but when I'm there, I can. So when my daughter was eight, she decided she was going to move here with me. And her mother, that, that blew me away, right? I established so much trust and, and, and respect at that time. Once again, yeah. that, um, you know, her mom said, well, you know what, Matt? I think you've done well enough. I think Evelyn wants to come live with you. So let's let's send her there. So so she did. And when my daughter got here, I fucking fell apart. I was so scared of being a parent, like just so fucking dreadfully afraid of it. And she needed me. You know, it, it was the fear of the fact that she couldn't be out of my sight for a minute. I couldn't really work. You know, if I would be there past seven o'clock, she would be calling me from I was living with my parents at the time. Um, my relationship, my relationship had ended at this point and I was staying with my parents, cheating on the girlfriend and trying to work. But I remember every night about eight o'clock getting this call and it made me so anxious. Um, I just ultimately relapsed. You know, I ended up, I want to I get my timeline right. At this point, so at the end of that relationship, this relapse happened, but it didn't happen on such an egregious level because, you know, Evelyn had just moved there and I was trying to hold it together as best I could. You know, I would, I would, never be out of her sight i would put her to bed and i would use drugs you know behind the counter uh so literally laying down just so i could get high uh, and then as time progressed um you know i had been at work with one company for a good amount of time and my addiction just started to grow and grow and grow and grow and i think a lot of it came from fear of parenting you know i had this kid with me every single night i was the only person responsible for her yeah. you know and um it scared the shit out of me it scared the shit out of me and I didn't do the right thing. And she didn't know anything about it. She knew nothing about what I was doing. She, if you ask her today, she'll tell you, you know, I never saw my dad take a drug. I never saw him high. But I mean, I can remember prostitutes telling her, your dad's a fucking crackhead and he owes me fucking money, you know? And this happened more than once. I remember people banging on our doors at 2 a.m., you know, saying, open the fucking door, open the fucking door, you owe me money, blah, 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 you know? And, and that was the life I lived, but you know, she just, she blocked all that out and, and I don't know how she did, but mm. it, it was just the amount of love and, and adoration that the kid had for me. So I guess that was so scary, you know, like the amount of love and, and like, uh, like the need that she had for me mm. just blew me away. So at this point I had been working with some company for a couple of years, uh, 
things were going well at work and um, I was still using pretty often. And, and my addiction grew to the point where I was running a general manager of, of general of a national grid in Waltham uh, for a corporate catering contract. And I would just take the cash every day and they trusted me that much. So $1,500 a day I would take and blow on drugs and women and whatever I wanted and just live like a slob. I'd go home at 3 a.m. to my kid. My parents were watching her at the time. Um, I'd been kicked out of that relationship by that point. And um, I had to uh, eventually, you know, um, and I eventually ended up in a rehab, you know, and my parents ended up having to watch Evelyn for a while. And, um, you know, things just slowly fell apart again. At that point, um, you know, the, it never got better. You know, I kept pulling her from one place to another. We would just change our houses. You know, we'd move out of my parents' house to get them off our back. Once I got out of rehab, it, I just fell off the wagon again. Um, there was really no fixing it. Uh, the the intensity of like the parenting, the the need of her. I, I don't really know what it was. You know, it, it's just always this 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 endless this pain of of self torture and self inflicted torture. But COVID happened, right? So then COVID hits. And nobody can go anywhere. Um, during that time, I was think one of the only people out in the streets just running amok every day. So during COVID, I caught a couple charges, DUIs, um, was never home, um, ended up moving back into my parents' house, uh, in and out, which I'm still never allowed back to live there today <laughs> with how many times I've been in and out of their house. And I know I jump around a little bit in my story, but it, it's still very foggy to me, you know, the timeline, because we were always jumping all over the place. Uh, we ended up in you know, an apartment in Salem, then we'd end up in an apartment on Brady Ave in Salem, and then we lived there for like two weeks, and we we're back at my parents' house, and then back at my parents' house. We ended up moving to Boston, and then moving to Boston. And we moved into another apartment in Alston mm. and it was always just jumping around from home to home, um, burning job, burning this, you know, always just chasing drugs, never having any money um, and having to apologize for it. I'll tell you a funny story. During all this time during COVID, I decided I was going to start, you know, selling dogs and I was working with a, um, uh, somebody who helped me import them from Eastern Europe. And I thought this was great. I could flip dogs for like, you know, 1500 bucks. But I had a couple in Michigan that I was picking up an old English bulldog from and Evelyn was with me. And we were driving. I said, you're going to be my navigator. And I was high. I had drugs in the car. I had a car full of crystal meth. And I had my kid with me. And we packed up like we were going on a three-day road trip. I had a rental car at the time. And we got we started going through New York. And about an hour away from the Canadian border, I said, hey, baby, um, does this say we're going through Canada? <laughs> and she's like, ah, yeah, Dad. I'm pretty sure it does. This line right here shows we're going right through Canada. Now, I'm about to enter Canada at a point where you can't turn back. And we have no map car full of drugs, no identification for me or for her. And I remember getting to the border and just being so shit scared. And uh, they let us pass through. And, and when we got back through Canada, they, when we were leaving Canada to go through Michigan, the guy says, I, I heard about you guys a couple hours ago. We're actually checking your license plate to make sure you leave the country right now because you don't have identification. He goes, let me tell you, don't come back this way. <laughs> and I said, okay. Uh, but that was hugely scary, um, you know, to, to actually, I, I always had the luck of being let out of a lot of situations, um, lawfully and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so, and I guess you guys gave me a lot of time to talk. Jesus, I can talk. Um, but anyway, <laughs> keep so, going, keep going. So, you know, through, through COVID, um, you know, I just deteriorated uh, like hard to a point where I couldn't function any longer. And I was always working, you know, I always got jobs for 85 to $110,000. Everyone was willing to give me a job. Um, and I jumped from company to company at this point. I had left the company that I was with for a while for stealing $50,000 from them. Um, and they didn't you know press what, charges. They just Matt, let me go. You know, Matt, you know what's like 
What's really impressive is the is what a high functioning individual you have to be for years Correct. to use map crack and be able to have a job. Cause I can't fucking do any of that. When I start you, you know, in the past when I've, when I've relapsed, like I can't manage anything that resembles a life on meth and crack. So I just talk, I throw, I mail it in, you know, I just take yeah. off. I don't even bother. Oh. I don't even bother. Oh. And hearing you share about all these, like, these unbelievable jobs, but like you're using, you're fucking doing that shit. It's like unbelievable. The week, the week before I had to tell this man, I stole $50,000 because I woke up and emptied his entire safe at the unit I was working. He shook my hand and said, I was the fastest growing star in the company. And I was about to be promoted to district manager. And he said, you're going to put on a presentation at the office down in Mansfield. And we're going to boost you up. And we're going to give you six of our accounts. And you're going to basically write your own check from here, Matt Garen. You got the keys to success and, and I want it. And, uh, that was the last talk we had before I walked in his office a week later, said I spent $49,086 of your money on crack, crystal meth, and yeah. prostitutes. And he, to this day, he still has that number written on his wall. Uh, he was so hurt and shocked by it, you know? Yeah. But that's how, it's funny. I can't function as a sober person in a workplace because, you know, I have, I have a lot of feelings and I have a lot of integrity and I want to do things the right way. But it's like when I was running them up that way, I just didn't care. And I got shit done, you know, um, I unapologetically just got shit done. Um, but, you know, the actual sober version of me is a is a much worse employee than that. Uh, not, yeah. I mean, not worse, but I mean, uh, you know, uh, I guess I feel my way through situations a lot more. Whereas the other way, I just pushed right through. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of how I, I, I attribute it. It's I really the um, most fascinating part of like caring you share is being able to manage all that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I was given nothing. I remember going to photo shoots, you know, and having people like, you know, dress me up and put makeup on me and shit and being so high and like, you know, like, not, I, I barely even recall. I, I was doing, um, you know, Nikki Beach parties with telling, you know, I had to do like shows with models and like tell them why the dish matched their personality. I never met these models before. I just had to, you know, I basically was given a script that I had, to, you know, and I'm doing all this shit high and. I couldn't do that shit sober, man. You know, I don't even know if I could do that stuff sober. Right? It does. It's not real to me. You know, you know, real is real for me is uh is parenting. Real for me is home. Real for me is like doing the right things now. I guess, you know, um, COVID happened, so I ended up sending Evelyn on a vacation, and that was what kind of sparked the book. Um, you know, I wrote the book, The Duke of Doucheville, which happened because I decided that, you know, I was, I, you know, not for nothing, but before I sent her home. I was still struggling and yeah, I was working good jobs, but I had to get honest with myself. You know, I, I wasn't the parent she needed at the time. And it wasn't until recently that I've started to empathize with her mother about why she took her. But at the same time, it's my daughter's choice to be here. And we were living a successful life at the time. Um, things were going in a positive direction, not granted, not for very long um, because I had been in and out of relapses so often, but her mother decided that when I sent her back for vacation post COVID just around 2021 in that, that July, that I get an email saying that she was not returning to the United States. Um, she had just won the fourth grade spelling bee. Um, things were going well. We were living in Boston at the time. And I say well, but you know, they were going well for her. I was coaching her little league team. Their team won the championship. She won the spelling bee. Um, she couldn't have been happier in life, you know? Um, and then to hear that was crushing. Not because, you know, it was what I wanted. It was because what she wanted. And my daughter told me, dad, come get me. Please find a way to come get me. So I, I put down everything. I put down all the drugs I got. I, at this point, I had been living for, you know, the last three, four years, 
with her living with me, you know, with basically people banging down my door to either stab me or, or collect money or, or deliver drugs or whatever, you know, and that was the lifestyle I was used to. And I had no ID, um, no money, no job. Uh, I'd left everything at this point. I was renting out my room to um, a transvestite and his girlfriend who were who were also, you know, in the prostitution uh, ring. And uh, my, my meth dealer was actually renting out the other room and, and he was a cross dresser at nighttime um, and used to go out and have all kinds of fancy parties. But this lifestyle was just gross. And after she got taken, I, I fell apart, um, had to pick myself up, you know, that that September, about a month after she was taken, September 28th is my sobriety day. That's when I put everything down. I went to get my ass a passport, went to get my ass an ID, birth certificate, all those things, um, and got my ass to Thailand. And when I got there, um, you know, I saw I went I went to find Evelyn. I had a tracker on her at the time. I had an air tag on her. So I, I went to her mother's house and she was shocked I was there, but I tried to work it out with her peacefully mm -hmm. and um, and she wouldn't hear it. She tried calling the police on me. And my daughter told the police that she did not feel safe with her mother, that she wanted to come with me. Uh, and that was shocking to them. But at the same time, uh, Thai people side with Thai people. And at the end of the day, I was I was convinced that I was going to grab her, get her passport and take her home where they just wanted to bring me to the police station and tell me that if I came back there, that they were going to drug test me and throw me in jail. And I said, OK, so I had to leave the country with my tail between my legs and leave Evelyn there in that that November. So that was November 21st of 2021. And that's when I that's when I started typing. I remember I was I had like the last seat of a United Airlines or an Emirates flight at that time. I was, I was no longer flying United. I hated them. So I was on the Emirates flight and it was a very empty flight. And it was from uh, they stopped in Dubai and it was from Bangkok to Dubai that I grabbed my phone, opened up the notes section and started typing. And uh, when I got off that plane, 24 hours later, I had about twenty five thousand words typed out. And the wow. book is about the book is about 70,000, you know, and over the course of the next 21 days, I, I just kept writing and writing and writing and I put all my pain on paper. And, and when I read it today, some of it's just like my story all over the place. Um, definitely, um, you know, barely even even comprehensible by me, but hmm. there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of anger in that book. And um, I don't carry that with me today. And I remember, you know, going through recovery and, 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 and focusing on recovery and, and remembering all the things that I, I heard about, you know, the reasons we, we stop doing things as addicts and in the way that we grow up. And, um, and I can look back and I can identify with that now and say, you know, yeah, there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of immaturity. There was a lot of young recovery there. Um, but it's all real, you know, and that reality and that love, that's, that's what pulled me out of it. Mm. You know, it, it all that stuff. Matt, can, can you share what, what your recovery looks like today? Like day to day, what's that look Absolutely. like? Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I spent an hour and a half talking about shit. We might as well get to the good stuff, right? <laughs> so I don't, you know, I guess everyone expects to hear certain things. And what my recovery looks like is is very different than that. You know, my recovery is focused on my family. It's focused on, you know, giving back to the people that put up with me through the years. Giving back to myself um and i try to so i don't i don't do a lot of alcoholics anonymous you know it, it bothers me being in halls because I, I it's the same people talking about the same things and the same adages i don't see i don't see a focus on the newcomer um i never really have you know i i think it's very hard for a newcomer in alcoholics anonymous these days because because of the egos in the room so what i try to focus on is is focusing at least an hour or two a day into recovery and by that i mean 
um, getting on my knees. I definitely keep a very close contact with, with God. Um, I've definitely gone back into the denomination of, of being a Catholic um, as I was raised. Um, I firmly believe in Jesus Christ and I, I talk to I talk to my higher power every day. Um, I also try to, I work a 10th step, right? So the one thing I did say, take from AA is, is, is doing that 10th step, right? Being accountable for what I do and being able to identify what those things are that I need to be accountable for, right? Yeah. Understanding which of my behaviors um, are laced with agenda and which ones are, you know, are real and identifying those to the people I love. I, I focus on being a parent, you know, even though Evelyn doesn't return, um, I did, I have won her back through custody uh, in this short time and she does return in May of 2024. So six short months, I, I keep a very close relationship with her. Um, I keep a, a running dialogue with my parents and, you know, all the, um, all the old feelings of, of rejection or not getting what I want instantly. Um, you know, like I said, through the, through the 10th, 11th and 12 steps, just giving back to other people, um, you know, focusing on my, my own self-assessment and self-assessment is, is really, you know, the base of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 I know who I am. I, I know I can be an aggressive, egotistical cunt and I know I can be very, uh, you know, stubborn. I know I can be, um, you know, very direct to the point where like people just don't want to hear it. And I, I know who I am, you know, and, and I don't need to apologize for that today, but I can definitely, um, I can definitely pivot that into, into a positive. Yeah. I try to focus on the positives. You know, I learn a lot about, um, you know, I try to follow for me, I, I try to follow the four agreements because four is a lot simpler than five and five is a lot simpler than 12. Um, and when I break it down, you know, four agreements is, is the easiest thing that I can basically comprehend at this point, you know, um, and those things are, are basically, you know, doing your best, being impeccable with your word. Um, and, and so not taking things personally. Yeah. Um, and that's really all I focus on today. And I can keep it simple with that. Uh, it's funny that you bring that book up, the four agreements, because I'm actually looking at right now, as you said, that 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 second book, The Mastery of Love by yep. Don Miguel Ruiz. You, have you read that one? Um, parts, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just funny that you wrote that up. It's literally right in front of me. <laughs> no, and I, I, I also I also note my my denomination uh, religiously, but but that doesn't mean that I'm um I'm, 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 I'm a devout or strict Catholic. It means I believe I believe in what I believe, but uh, I'm also a Taoist. I'm also a Buddhist. Uh, I I believe that these religions have have uh, a lot to offer to people as a whole, right? I mean, the universe uh, the universe has definitely found a way to balance things for me, and yeah. I take that into account. You know, um, and I you live that everyone's right or wrong. You live in a mass. Nope. I have, um, so my family and I, um, I had Barbaros will, will, um, be able to attest to this. Uh, he, mm. you know, we were, we were high school buddies and, um, a good, good friend of ours in high school. Uh, we got married. Uh, her name's Tammy and, um, it's been a little rocky lately, but we decided to relocate to Tampa. The transition's been tough and, and life has really smacked me in the face as of late. But, um, mm. these are just the struggles that I attribute to being sober and the things that I can handle today. Um, yeah. You know, I can be there for them in whatever aspect they need. And granted, it it does come with a lot of humility at times. But uh, we did relocate to Tampa. Um, you know, we wanted to be in a place where it was warm. Uh, they don't like the cold. Tammy has two kids of her own. And, um, you know, we're, we're split at the moment. But, you know, uh, everything happens for a reason. Um, you know, there's a lot of struggles in sobriety. And, and I definitely don't want to um, say that there's not, right? That's the other thing, too. I, I go to A and everything is, oh, everyone's life is peachy keen and, 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 and second to none, right? Well, that's not always true, right? I mean, 
there's there's a lot of struggles that happen in sobriety too. I, I just have the ability to deal with them today. Yeah. Um, yeah. I uh, I never got my license back. You know, there's a lot of things that I haven't done yet. Um, right. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of transition still going on in my life. There's still a lot of growth to be had. But I guess I focus on more of the internal stuff than the external stuff. That's great. Um, Matt, Matt, can you, can you share uh, where people can get your book? Yeah. Um, so it's available on Amazon. Um, it was actually published by my wife, who is an amazing um, editor, publisher, and, and graphic designer. Uh, she did the cover. So we decided to self-publish. It was picked up by a few publishing companies. Um, we decided not to go that route and do it ourselves. But it's available on Amazon. Um, the Duke, Duke of Doucheville is what it's called. Um, self-titled, obviously, because I'm a major cunt. And, uh, you know, I want it to be self-deprecating and I didn't want it to be something uh, that, that that gave anybody the uh, interpretation that it would be anything, you know, otherwise. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and I appreciate that, guys. Yeah. Uh, no, Matt, I mean, you, you, your, your story is, you know, obviously, you know, very, very amazing. And I, I'm really happy that you're, you know, you're here where you are. I mean, you, you and I have been touch base, you know, for the last, like, you know, couple of weeks. And, yeah. Um, no, oh, you know Matt. Matt might be you know self-deprecating, but Matt is and was in high school a very good baseball player, and he's an amazing golfer, and he yeah. also was a, a great skater. And so ice hockey, you know, yeah. really, really good stuff. So, uh, so some of the th- some of the things I do here in Tampa too, some of the positives, and and you know, it's hard to get you know transition or pivoting the mind off of you know all those chronic stories that I just told you. Um, but you know, I, I, I play baseball in Pasco County. Um, and these kids respect me today. You know, they, they ask me advice and I play hard. I leave it all out on the field and stuff. And, you know, uh, everything I do is, is done in a positive way up here. And it's, it's fun. So the baseball is still there. I'm still trying to compete with 19 year olds at 44 years old. I tore my meniscus, which I have surgery on Friday morning. I tore my PCL and I tore my quadricep right off the bone by trying to break a bat over my knee in the same game. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So, like, right. The, the life of an addict. Right. Um, uh, I'm an intense person. There's, just no, <laughs> there's no getting coming. around that. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on, Matt. Was, uh, oh, thank you guys for letting me ramble. You guys are awesome. Man. No, no, there wasn't. There was actually very little rambling and I would have cut you off and, and told you to shut the fuck up if that was the case. So great. No, I didn't know. I didn't say I didn't say a word throughout. Basically, (laughs) enthralled by it, you know, hanging off every word. So, appreciate that. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, just just to reiterate to our audience, you know, please, you know, support Matt and his book, uh, The Duke of Doucheville. Uh, You can Google it. You know, it's you know it's on Amazon. So, you know, support him and, and support people like him who. Um, tell their story kind of openly and honestly to not only just benefit themselves, but also like enlighten that this happens to other people and, you know, him coming on here, telling his story is a way of, you know, sharing and loading off of his shoulders, but it's also, you know, providing some insight and some, some, you know, some insight into what is going on into other people's lives, right? Everyone is affected by addiction to some degree, some shape, some form. And yep. so you know, hopefully this is helpful to people who are you know, paying attention and, and listening to our shows. Yeah, I have um, I have one little blip if I if I can read it for you guys. So, I mean, I write pretty often and, and you know, going through the recent struggles of, of, of even in sobriety, 
um, you know, with life struggles and stuff like that, um, you know, we, we, we find a purpose. So I guess if I can read one quick thing before I get off, um, I, yeah. I'd appreciate that. Sure. Well, we, we got you, we're going to, we, we got you for a little game that we play too. So you have like a few oh, moments. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, of course. No, we got, the, we got the five controversies, right? Yeah. Oh, you know all about this. All right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. So let, let me read this quick thing. So I, like I said, I've been doing a lot of soul searching, right. With, with family breaks and, and, you know, like I said, you know, I alluded to my family coming back before, you know, very quickly in my early sobriety, it's been very hard this time. There's a lot of doubt, right. There's a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. So, and I, I respect that and I understand that. So I guess, you know, we all, we all look to find our purpose. So in writing, um, you know, I have this short thing to say, it says, uh, long before the legacy of our lives come to an abrupt end, we desperately seek our purpose. Purpose is a word I have never come to feel fulfilled by hearing. It's laced with implication and for some of us regret. The reason for that may be a direct meaning other than the purpose itself. On one hand, we seek our true purpose, forcing it at times. True purpose is actually only achieved. Purpose to me is almost as concrete as enlightenment. Then again, I have no idea what enlightenment feels like, but I have read enough about it to know that the level of self-contentment that comes from it is way more liberating than the feelings I carry around with me on the daily. I identify my purpose in each situation rather than as a whole, but I'm slowly coming to grips with the mundane fact that by doing so, I'm actually crippling my ability within myself voluntarily from finding my own purpose. My projected purpose wavers each day with each passing moment I live or exist. Purpose, as I'm coming to understand it, is our most identifiable and in integral character asset, tapping into the lives and souls of others around me without force or agenda, the ones that I am obligated in my mind to build up self-confidence and positive energy from. Existence to me is an idle state. Purpose is an active state. Purpose means I'm humbly hobnobbing, casting love and hope into the scenes and situations which I exist. Existence is merely irrelevance. To each one of us, our purpose is different because our character assets are different. This is where self-assessment comes in handy. Some of us find contentment and purpose in our busy lives and possessions and manufactured social engagements. This is a desolate purpose. It's fictitious and contrived, shallow and lonely. Some of us find happiness and purpose in our daily structure and routine. Some of us find purpose only through our offspring. But each of these avenues of self-fulfilled destiny is derived from history and circumstance. They all come from a place of nature and experience through an inherited path. Very few of us actually find purpose organically. By that, I mean searching so deeply within ourselves and accepting life on life's terms and rising above, not throughout. The actual purpose of our existence will always be how many lives we touch with a positive impact and leave them as such. That is indisputable. Thank you. Damn. Thank you. Wow. So writing again and um, enjoying it. Keep keep doing that. That is, that is amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess that that's the, our, our pivot point to the, to the five controversies. So that uh, works. You, uh, play, play our music, please. All right. That is <laughs> lame. Um, so, um, all right. So the audience, uh, this is a, a segment of the show we call five controversies where I throw out at least two options. Uh, Matt, you'll go first, Adam, and then I will bring up the rear uh, about topics that I think we all generally experience, which brings some attention to them and then having a little uh, a, a battle amongst uh, each other uh, to see um, how, how, how we do certain things, how, how we go about our lives. Let's do it. Uh, so the first one, uh, Matt, you're up. Oatmeal. Do you like it soupy or lumpy? I fucking hate oatmeal. 
That's a stupid controversy. Uh, that's not, I that's like not a choice. It, I like it lumpy. Mm. Okay. I got I got so few teeth left, it just helps me feel better if I can eat more solid food. So I mean I'm gonna go with lumpy on this one. Okay. All right. Well that makes sense. All but, right. But is this is this instant oats or, or steel cut oats? Because I'm not sure. Well, now you're bringing your chef hat into the ring, and uh, we, we can't compete. You had to do a food one with the chef on, right? You, Come just, on. you just leave that out of it, right? <laughs> um, I, am I up? Go, go for it. All right. I don't do a ton of oatmeal. When I do, I like it lumpy. Texture's better. I put a lot of cinnamon usually on it. And that that adds to it. So yeah, that's, I put more I, brown sugar in mine than I do oatmeal in it. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. I, I think this is just a shitty controversy, anyways. But um, go ahead. we gotta we gotta have have them, I guess. Screw you, <laughs> screw you. Uh, it's three for three. How interesting is this? Is that I like my oatmeal lumpy too. <laughs> uh, it's, it's also a digital underground lyric, right? Humpty, I like my oatmeal lumpy. Yes, yes, yeah, that's a throwback from the nineties, bro. Yeah. So Ho hopefully you're out dating most of your audience. Oh, I don't know what it is about you know lumpy oatmeal. It's just uh again the, the texture, the clumpiness. Um, yeah. anytime I've okay. I've tried to make even instant oatmeal and it's like soupy, I'm like, I need more fucking oatmeal in this thing to to clump it all up. Right. Yeah, I don't want to push like milk and water through my teeth. Like I want to, I want to like push it like to the roof of my mouth with my tongue, and then like like feel that gritty grain. You yeah. know? <laughs> All right. That controversy was not worth the three minutes. But <laughs> uh, th th thank you, critic, the critic of <laughs> this very show that you're you co-host. We we could have spent an hour twenty eight on oatmeal. It would have been fine with me. <laughs> um, next next one, Matt. You're up yep. when you put silverware into the dishwasher do you go silverware down or silverware up listen i go down because i've stabbed myself enough times and i don't look when i do anything right so i just reach and when i reach i usually yell because i'm like who the fuck left the forks to get up like that so i gotta go down because i'm also the guy that empties the dishwasher and if you're the guy that empties the dishwasher you don't want to be grabbing all those fork prongs <laughs> And I don't give a shit if they're that clean. To be honest with you, the dishwasher doesn't clean them enough anyway. So I'm going with let. I'm going with down. Down. All right. Yeah, I was taught to to go with up, and I still do it up. Supposedly it cleans it better. Um, and I, I definitely like do the rinse off before putting them into the dishwasher too. So, and it still doesn't do a great job sometimes. But whatever. I was just taught to do it that way. Yeah, and I still I still, do. I still don't rinse them off before the dishwasher. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm up too. Spoons and forks um are up in my dishwasher. If I, I'm put, if I'm putting it in, it's 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 a hundred percent up, and I'm a little OCD where spoons are in its own little like cluster, forks in their own cluster, like uh you know butter you know knives and stuff like that on their own. Cluster. But like, yeah, everything is, uh, you know, facing up for some reason. I don't know. I think like for me, like when it's done and it's clean, it's like almost easier to grab. I don't know if this makes any sense, but like 
I like it grabbing it easier. I don't know. So so you put your grubby dick beaters all over the shit that you put in your mouth after it comes out of the dishwasher. So now it's sanitized. It's been it's reached 180 degrees. It's now perfectly clean and sanitary. And that's what you want to do to it. Yeah. I don't know. But for me, that's for me that that just contradicts the whole point of putting it in the dishwasher <laughs> in the first place, doesn't it? And not only that, but like the, the silverware department is, is compartment is the only place where I actually know what to do in a dishwasher. The rest <laughs> of the other two drawers, I have no fucking clue what's going on. Yeah, yeah you got some. Yeah. It all over the place. Ah, good point. Good, good point, Matt. Good, good point. All right, all right, all right. So I, I've been bothered by this one for for some time. It, it might be like a New Jersey thing where some terminology doesn't necessarily translate when you've kind of used to something in Massachusetts. So here it is. Is it called a speed hump, a speed bump, or a speed table? I've seen all. I've never heard speed table, and I think that you, you just you should probably catch a charge for even saying that. It's a speed bump um, right. for me. Um, I mean, they they all they're all implicit of really awful negative things, but I'm just gonna go with speed bump. <laughs> all right. I've never I've never called it anything else but a speed bump. Nice. I've never a called it a will tell you it's a speed bump. Right. Right. So. We all agree on this one. It, the fucking terminology is a speed bump. I don't know Thank what goodness. came into it. There's a place now that I, I, I drive through. It's like a closed down, like uh, like giant like building stuff. And I kind of like cut through it. And there the sign is, it's a speed table. Oh, those must be the long. So in Florida, they all say humps. But just so you know. And there's like longer ones those must be speed tables yeah like they elevate themselves but you drive over it like 30 or 40 feet and then you go back down correct like i could i could like i don't slow down i'm still doing like 50 miles per hour like over the speed table it doesn't feel like a speed bump like speed bump you hit that thing beyond like 30 miles per hour your car's like breaking right i feel like they only put speed tables if the houses are worth like six hundred thousand or more in the neighborhood (laughs) (laughs) any cross street has a speed table So the another the, the next one oh uh, uh, yeah so well, you got so you have three shitty ones so far. Shut <laughs> up, you! No one's no one's talking to you. Huh? I don't know. I like the dishwasher one. I thought that was good. Thank yeah. you, thank you, Matt. Um, next one. He's got to say that he's the guest. He's got to say that. Oh, shut up. <laughs> so, it's an honest program. He would tell the truth. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, um, yeah, sure. I, I think this is also an, another local thing. Is it called a rotary or a roundabout? Oh my god. It's a rotary, hundred percent. I'm from Mass, and we got rotaries. If you call it a roundabout, I'm, it's like it's like somebody that sends a, a text with green bubbles. Like I just don't fuck with you. <laughs> hey, that's me. Leave <laughs> you keep keep your green bubbles in your in your roundabouts. <laughs> Adam. Adam, are you there? Did he... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I I disengaged because they're so bad. I'm sorry. I'm back. <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, it's rotary. I've never called it anything else. I've heard the roundabout terminology before. I look down on that terminology. <laughs> I look down on people that call it a roundabout. <laughs> Judge the shit out of them. Oh, we're so much yeah, I'm just going with Rotary. So, yep. All right. What's a Rotary Club? Is that where they, is that where they decide where they're going to call it a Rotary Club? <laughs> because I've seen signs of those. Too. 
the, the rotary club, clubs that you know own the terminology, so they get to call. Nice, they get whatever they want. Sons of bitches, yeah. they know everything. Can I just say that I I could not envision doing these five controversies with just you, Bobros. That's how bad. <laughs> like at least Matt's there for like some extra humor, some humor or something. I don't yeah, know. yeah. You need you need you need some you need some plugs somewhere. Right, right. <laughs> Thank God you're on, Matt. Oh my God. <laughs> Oh, it's good to be needed and wanted for something. <laughs> be, be quiet. Well, you're you're only needed for like four more minutes, though. But come on. <laughs> All right, I I agree. It's a mass thing. It's called the rotary, the round little thing that you travel through to get from one side to another with like no stops on it or or, or lights. It's called the rotary. You rotate around the stupid thing and find your exit and go about your merry way. It, it is round, so I'll give the roundabout people some some credit there, but. Call it a damn rotary because because that's exactly what it is. I agree. I agree. If they're two lanes, though, uh, they're very confusing. <laughs> I mean, it's an extended rotary if they're two lanes. I'm not gonna lie. Hey, kids, big, look, kids, big, big Ben, Parliament. Right? Yeah. That's basically me. If it's two lanes, I don't know when the fuck to get in that right lane. And if I get there too early, then I feel like I got to take that next exit. Right. If, if you try to get there between one exit and the next, it's just not enough time. Yeah. Yeah. You got time it perfectly. Yep. <laughs> All right, next one, Matt, kind of up your category of food, Woo. but whipped versus regular cream cheese. Goodness. I mean, I do like a real pasty mouthful, but I'm going to go with whipped. I feel like I feel like I'm in my because I'm going to be like, oh, I could, you know, use my get my ass kicked or no, I'll just take the two hundred dollars. No, I'll definitely take the whipped. I mean, there's no there's no discussion there. Right. I mean, it's airy. It's light. It's fluffy. It's savory. It's salty. It's delicious. Um no, no, no doubt. But the only thing I don't like, see, here, I'm a guy that likes warm bread. I don't like toast. I don't like it hard and crispy. So I think for the people that like it hard and crispy, they got to go with the pasty shit, the unwhipped stuff, because it doesn't melt as fast. Mm, just, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a warm bread guy. So if it's whipped, it's for me because I can fluff it up, fold it over and just take a bite. Ah, uh, interesting. Interesting. Yo, I've overanalyzed every bit of food, believe me. Yeah, yeah. So you should. <laughs> <laughs> Adam? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going with the regular, not whipped. Um the the whipped it it um it it goes it, it it um how can I say this? It doesn't stay where I want it to stay. It's you're, you're a slob, it falls out, right. doesn't it? Right, thank you. Thank you. That's, uh, that's what just, I'm looking it, for. It, it, it falls the fuck itself, out, right? Right, that, the, grainy, that grainy bit of heaven just falls right on the lap. Right, I don't want to lose any of it. Yeah, so. I feel you. But it's so voluminous that it doesn't matter. See, Matt's so good, he did my controversy for me, basically. So. <laughs> he, he supported like the helping hand. <laughs> your choice. Yeah, I'm that guy that overshares, you know. I mean, look at the time, right? Uh, Our longest podcast episode ever. (laughs) So uh, I'm actually with uh, Matt here. Uh, I'm sorry, not Adam here. Big fan of regular cream cheese. The wife always gets the whip when she goes to Trader Joe's because I don't think they make (laughs) regular cream to Trader Joe's or carry it. I'm not a huge fan. like yeah, you, Matt, though, like I don't like hard toasted bread. I'd like a little warm bread. Yeah. But there's there's that connection between like the the like the harder regular cream cheese that just sits and like Adam said, stays exactly where you want to have it. And it just feels like a little like a little more substance. You know, when mm, I'm yeah. it. whipped does yeah. it, 
whipped, I had to almost like use the whole bucket to feel like I've yeah. got cream cheese. I get it. No, two, two, two pieces of bread, and I got to go back to the store for more whipped. <laughs> but I'm okay with that. <laughs> and it's got to be Philadelphia. I mean, it's like using help. Yeah, right? anything, uh, else is just, anything else is just no good. Yeah, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Good, good. At least we're on the same page there. <laughs> All right, Matt, greatly appreciate you coming on, spending time with us tonight and, and sharing your story. Please support Matt. Uh, the book is called The Duke of Doucheville, and you can find it on Amazon. Please support him. Um, and, you know, just thank you so much, you know, for putting yourself out there. Greatly appreciate your story. Uh, thank you, and keep doing great things, Matt. Uh, I love the person that you are today. Uh, you, know, just, you know, just do the right thing and um, everything else falls into place. Thank you guys. And that comes with just, uh, just being honest today. Right. So I appreciate you guys having me. Um, I, I, I wish I got a little, a lot more into, you know, my recovery and, and how great things are. Um, but again, like I said, uh, life comes ups and downs and sobriety as well. But the main thing is, is, uh, you know, I stay sober and I try to do the next right thing. Right. Exactly. Bob, if you want to, you want to save a, you know, our email and all that great stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, so uh, please uh, email us with any co uh, questions, comments, or any topics that you want us to cover for any future podcast. Uh, the email is theaddictandthecounselor at gmail.com. Theaddictandthecounselor at gmail.com. Uh, the show, The Addict and the Counselor, can be found on, on, on any podcast platforms. Uh, Spotify, if you listen to us on Spotify, you can comment directly on, on the episode. Let us know how we're doing and how you like this particular episode. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcast, uh, Amazon Music Podcast. Um, so, yeah, uh, please listen, follow, and tell your friends about us. Hell yeah, everyone. You better do that. All right. All right. All right. Thanks for All right, Thank yeah. you, guys. I'll talk to you later. All right. All right. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you.